Well, if you have your Bibles with you again this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalm 15. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 575. And if you're a guest with us today, we've begun a series for the summer through Psalms. And we're studying Psalm 15 this morning, and I'll speak for a few minutes on this subject, questions and answers. Psalm 15. And this is what the Bible says. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Life is full of questions, and it often feels as if we have more questions than we do answers. And we need look no further than the latest statistics on the most uh, popular Google searches to confirm this reality, which, by the way, I did in preparing this sermon. Ours is a culture that thinks it has all of the answers, but in reality, it is full of questions. And when I was in seminary working on my master's degree, there was a movement throughout evangelicalism that was challenging preachers to preach to the felt needs of their congregation rather than explain the Bible to them. And one theologian rightly surmised this faulty thinking, saying, the world does not know the right questions to ask. God must reveal the questions as well as the answers. And here, in Psalm 15, God reveals the most important question that anyone could ever ask, and then he gives the answer. Psalm 15 is a psalm of David that is designed to prepare the worshiper to enter the presence of God. This psalm shares parallel themes with Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6, and Isaiah chapter 33 verses 14 to 16. This psalm has been described as the first cousin to the list of Christian duties in the Apostle Paul's letters, as well as looking forward to the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5 and the Ten Commandments of Exodus chapter 20. This psalm is a cry for communion with God. As David asks and answers the ultimate question, who of us can come into the presence of God? Dr. Steve Lawson in his commentary on the Psalms describes the importance of David's question in verse number 1 stating, Many of the Lord's servants have forgotten how to approach their Lord, the King of heaven and earth. There is a divinely prescribed manner in approaching God that is frequently forgotten in this present age. Believers must be careful not to enter his presence with a life filled with unholy thoughts, conduct, and words. Instead, they must prepare themselves with reverence and awe and humble submission, knowing they are entering the presence of the King of Kings. End quotes. In essence, this psalm is about reminding you and I what is required of us when we come into the house of God and we come into the presence of God. And in five short verses, David provides a description of the one who can commune with God and enter into his presence. 
And this psalm is a warning for all of us. As David challenges us to examine our walk and to examine our works and to examine our words if we desire to experience true fellowship and communion with the God of the universe. And so would you notice with me, first of all, in verse number one, the probing question. And David writes, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? David begins this psalm by addressing two questions directly to the Lord. And while on the surface these two questions appear different, in reality, David is posing a single question composed of two parts. And this question is a searching question. It is a question about who is eligible to come before the Lord, to come before Yahweh and worship him. And this heart-searching question must be asked by everyone who wants to worship God and commune with him. Who of us may enter God's house and come into his presence and receive his welcome? This, friends, is a question that calls for meditation closely upon our spiritual condition. And that is what David is asking us to do at the beginning of this psalm. To pause and to think about this question. And allow it to search our hearts. And to meditate on its reality. In asking ourselves, is our spiritual condition such a condition that you and I can come into God's presence and receive his welcome? And so when David in verse 1 asks... Who shall sojourn in your tent? David is actually going further back in the Old Testament, and he is employing the language of the Exodus and the constructing of Yahweh's tent sanctuary in Exodus chapters 25 to 40. This tent, or this tabernacle, it represented God's dwelling place that went with his people as they journeyed towards the promised land. And when you study Exodus chapter 25 to 40, you find that Yahweh's tent sat in the middle of all of Israel's tents. And it pictured God's desire to dwell among his people. And it was a reminder to them of his presence among them and of their need to keep Yahweh central in the focus of their lives. This tent represented God's special presence among the Israelites, establishing them as a nation, protecting them from harm, and blessing their faithfulness to him. And when David asks in verse 1, who shall dwell on your holy hill? He is looking forward in the Old Testament, and he is referring to Mount Zion, the place in Jerusalem where the temple was built. And this holy hill was the place where God revealed his presence and his power and his protection to his people. It is described by David in verse number one as a holy hill because God is a holy God. And this holy hill was a pure place that was set apart for God. And those who would come and dwell in this temple with him in fellowship must be holy as God is holy. And so essentially, friends, in verse number one, David is asking, Lord, who among us can have friendship with you? Who among us, Lord, can enter into your holy presence, sing your praises, pray to you, commune to you, receive your forgiveness and grace, and worship you. And with the language of verse number one, David reminds us that all who desire to worship God must come into his presence with an understanding of his holiness. Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter six and verse three that God is holy, holy, holy. 
Isaiah means that God is transcendent. He's majestic. He's all-glorious. He's sinlessly perfect. He's without any blemish or impurity. And a deep realization of this blazing holiness of God is essential, says David, for anyone to rightly approach him. And David is teaching us, friends, what the rest of the Bible teaches us, that not until a person has beheld the holiness of God is he able to understand the true state of his or her spiritual condition. All of us must see ourselves in light of God's holy character. And until we do, our knowledge of ourselves is significantly flawed. It was only after Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, that he saw God's holiness. It was only after he saw that, that he became aware of his sinful condition and the sinful condition of the people around him. And David is teaching us, when we see and understand the holiness of God, it will lead to a realization of our own sinfulness and of the confession and the repentance of our sin. And David is teaching us, until you and I see God and ourselves in this light, we are not prepared to come into his presence. And so I ask you this morning, have you seen the holiness of God? And in light of his holiness, have you seen your sinfulness. David's words in this verse also serve as a preview. They serve as a preview of the greater tabernacle and temple that was to come through the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. For John in the prologue of his gospel declared in John 1.14 that the word Jesus Christ became flesh and he dwelt or tabernacled among us. And Jesus said of himself in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 6 that something greater than the temple is here. And Jesus, in his life and in his ministry and in his death and in his ascension, did what the tabernacle and temple were meant to do to reconcile sinful man to God so that we could come into his presence. But unlike the tabernacle and the temple, Jesus' reconciling work is permanent. And those who are united to Christ by faith in Him and in His work, the Bible says, become God's temple and the dwelling place of God's Spirit. And David is giving us a picture of this work of Christ. And it begs us to ask ourselves, have we been reconciled to God through Christ? And his work on the cross. So David begins this psalm by asking a probing question. And then he gives in verses 2 through 5 a practical answer. Now look carefully at verses 2 through 5. In these verses, David answers the question of verse number 1. And he does it with 12 statements. But these 12 statements are summarized into three categories that he gives in verse number 2. Walk, works, and words. Those are the three categories that all of these statements fall into. And the language of verse number 2, if you read it carefully, is in the present tense. And it means that it is continual action. And David is describing worshipers and the way of their life that should be a typical characteristic of them. So these three categories, our walk, our works, and our words, should be typical of how we live our lives if you and I are going to come into God's presence and worship Him. And receive his friendship. One commentator said these qualifications do not serve as a checklist. So that we might be confident in our worthiness of entering. Rather they will remind us that without divine help we will never enjoy God's presence. 
And so I say to you at the outset, friends, our temptation is to write down all 12 statements and then look at our lives and say, check, I got that, check, I got that, check, I got that. I'm not so bad about that. That's pretty good. I'm okay. And rationalize our lives. And the point of these verses, as you'll soon see, is to show you that without the help of God, you cannot come into his presence. So what does he say to us? Well, in verse 2, he says that our walk must be holy. Look at how he begins. He who walks blamelessly. The word walk that he uses describes the daily pattern of a person's life. It is used to describe the direction of our lifestyle, the direction that our life is headed. And David says that our walk, if we're going to be worshipers of God, must be, in verse 2, blameless. Now, I love the fact that David uses the word blameless and not the word sinless because they're not the same. The word blameless does not mean sinless. Here's what it does mean. It means someone who is whole, someone who is complete, someone who is sound. A blameless person is one whose character is morally well-rounded. This person isn't strong in certain areas of their life and then weak in other areas of their life. The blameless person lives a life that comes together in wholeness and soundness and in complete balance. It is a life that is balanced in living godly. He whose walk is whole. He whose walk is sound. I would describe it this way. He whose walk is consistent. That the direction of your life is consistent. It's sound. It's whole. That you're the same person in public that you are in private. That you're the same person with this group of people that you are with this group of people. That you're the same person at Walmart as you are in the house of God. Sound, whole, balanced, blameless. Now, if you'll skip down to verse 4 with me, David illustrates what it means to live a walk of holiness. And he says in verse 4, the person whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. And with these two phrases, David is emphasizing, look carefully at the text, that a blameless walk is characterized by spiritual discernment. That there's a contrast to this statement in verse 4. That a blameless walk despises a vile person and a blameless walk honors those who fear the Lord. And so according to David, the true worshiper of God despises the vile person. What does that mean? It means that a person who is living a holy life, a blameless walk, a well-rounded, sound life, disdains vileness and sinfulness and wickedness to the point of hating it. You could translate it this way. Do you hate sin? Do you hate wickedness? Do you hate evil? And notice the text carefully. This Despising is centered around a person that David describes as being vile. This word vile in the ESV is translated in some places as reprobate. In other places, it is translated and refers to one who is rejected. And in this context, it refers to one who is rejected by God. The vile person is someone who is known for evil, someone who is known for hardened perversity, someone who is proud of their sin. They're proud of it. They're not trying to hide it. 
they're trying to be bold with it and to get in your face with it. And it is the type of attitude that is becoming more and more prominent in the culture in which you and I live. We are losing as a culture the ability to be shamed by anything. We are bold in our wickedness and in our sin and in our evil. And notice carefully what David is teaching us. He is teaching us that if we are going to experience the friendship of God, if we are going to experience God's welcome into his presence, we must be living a life and walking a walk of holiness. And that walk of holiness includes disdaining to the point of hatred, vileness, wickedness, evil, blatant sin against God. But then he says positively in verse 4, the true worshiper of God will honor those who fear the Lord. This word honor literally could mean praise as giving glory to God as well as to treat someone with honor by giving them respect. And so he gives a negative example of what walking in holiness looks like. You despise the vile. And he gives a positive example. You honor those. You respect those. You give praise to God for those in your life who fear the Lord. And so the true worshiper of God looks beyond what is popular and acceptable in our culture and in the eyes of the world. And they honor and they respect those who fear God and those who serve Him. It's a matter of discernment, friends. Discerning between good and evil in our lives and in our culture. And I'll, I'll summarize David's words here about walking in holiness with 1 Corinthians 15.33. And I hope that everyone listens to this verse but especially the teenagers and the younger folks in our congregation. Listen to what Paul says. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Oh, friends, your, your friends will either make you or break you. Those you date will either lift you up and draw you closer to God or pull you further away from God. Those you spend time with will either influence you for good and for God, or they will influence you for evil and away from God. Do not deceive yourselves that it doesn't matter who you spend time with, who you date, who you do things with. The Bible says it does matter, and if you're going to be a worshiper of God, you must walk in holiness and blamelessness. You must hate evil and honor and love that which is good because God hates evil and God loves good because God is a God of holiness and God is a God of goodness. And if you're going to be in His presence, you must live like that. But secondly, not only must our walk be holy. In verse 2, he says our works must be holy. He not only walks blamelessly, he does what is right. He does what is righteous. And David is describing a person who leads a life marked by consistent obedience to God, obedience to his word, and obedience to his will. One commentator said this is the person who actually does what is righteous, rather than merely talking about it. Doing what is right and lawful and good and honest is eminently pleasing to God, whether it's in private or in public, in church or in the office. You do what is right. You do what is righteous. And if you'll look in verse number 5, David illustrates what it means for our works to be holy. He says at the beginning of verse 5, the person who can come into God's presence and worship him does not put out his money at interest. What's he talking about? 
Well, according to the law of Moses in Exodus and Deuteronomy and in Leviticus, taking interest from fellow Israelites was strictly forbidden. And that the law of Moses taught them that they were to assist their neighbor generously. They were to give to those who were in need without taking interest. And David says that a genuine worshiper of God will use the resources that God has given them to help others in need. They'll not charge interest. They'll not take advantage. They'll be generous with what God has blessed them with. Look at this second part of verse 5. And they won't take a bribe against the innocent. And in Deuteronomy chapter 16, we are warned of this, how the poor were often taken to court and exploited by the rich who could afford to pay a bribe and thwart justice. It sounds kind of relevant to the culture that you and I live in, doesn't it? And with this statement, David is saying that the sincere worshiper of God does not let the potential for personal gain influence and corrupt his integrity. That's the point. That you are not so in love with money. That you are not so in love with the things that the world can provide that your integrity is corrupted. That your influence is corrupted. James, in his book in the New Testament, summarizes this holiness of our works. And in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17, this is what James writes. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And that's exactly what David is teaching us in Psalm 15. What good is it for you to say that you love God and that you have faith in Him if you have no works that support that faith? If you're not interested in doing what is righteous, if you're not interested in being generous and helping other people, When you see these needs, no, David says the Psalm 15 man or woman is not consumed with finances. They're not driven by covetousness. They've learned to trust God and be content with what God has given him. And they learn to be generous. They do holy works of righteousness. So they walk a holy walk. And they do holy works. And third, their words must be holy. And so you may be thinking, oh, I got category number one under control. Walk is blameless. I'm good. I I do works. I work hard. I work as hard as anybody in this room. Got that covered. Ah, but the third category. I think all of us will have trouble with this one. Look at what he says in verse 2. And speaks truth in his heart. Now, when the Bible uses the word heart, friends, it's referring to the center of our wills. It is referring to the place where decisions are made and intentions are formed. And the heart is so crucial to our lives that the book of Proverbs gives this warning about our hearts. In Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for out of it flow the issues of life. That's how serious our heart is to our living. We are to watch over our heart with such diligence, with such vigilance, because every single issue in our lives flows out of what is going on in our hearts. If your marriage is not right this morning, listen to me. It's because there's a heart issue with you. If your relationships with your children aren't right this morning, it's because there's a heart issue going on. If your relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ are not right this morning, it's because there is a heart issue at the center of the problem. 
every single problem that we have, friends, is a problem of the heart. Because the Bible says every single thing in our lives flows from our heart. And we're to guard it. And David says, if you and I are going to enter the presence of God, if we're going to worship Him and experience His friendship, we must speak truth in this central part of our lives, in our heart. If we're going to worship God, we must speak truth in our heart. That's why one commentator said Psalm 15 requires the sincerity of the speaker and the accuracy of what is spoken. That in the life of a worshiper, there can be no guile, no hidden agenda, no half-truths. That the truth that is spoken must be sincere, and it must be the true and accurate intention of our heart. And you say, well, what's the big deal about this? Why does God care about us speaking truth in our hearts? Oh, simple. God hates hypocrisy. And God hates hypocritical worship that comes from lips with a heart that is far from him. He hates it. And Jesus Stress the importance of this truth to the Pharisees and the scribes of his day, the religious leaders who were excellent at drawing near to God with their lips while their hearts were far from him. And Jesus quoted the prophet Isaiah to him, and this is what he said to him in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 8. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Oh, the people that Jesus was referring to were the religious elite of his day. Oh, they drew near to God on a regular basis with their lips, but there was no truth in their heart. And Jesus went on in that chapter, in Matthew chapter 15, and in his encounter with the Pharisees and the scribes. And he taught, listen friends, that there is a direct correlation between what you and I think on the inside in our hearts and what we say on the outside. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 18. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles a person. What comes out of your mouth originated in your heart. I remember talking to one of my children one day after they said some very hurtful things to one of their siblings, and I was speaking to them. And they said to me, Dad, I just don't even know where that came from. And do you know what I said to them? It came from your heart. Because in that moment, what was in your heart towards your sibling is what came out of your mouth. And so, friends... When you're talking to your spouse in an ungodly, terrifying, angry way, you say, I don't know why I talk like that. Remember this sermon. You talk like that because in that moment, that was what was in your heart towards your spouse. And you can't deny it because Jesus said, what came out of your mouth was from your heart. And when you speak, about your coworker in a negative way to elevate yourself above them? And you say, well, I just don't know why I did that. Yes, you do. You did it because that was what was in your heart towards them. When you speak about your pastor or the other leaders, oh, come on now. Let's be real. I've been doing this a long time. I know that happened. It's what's in your heart towards them when you say that. It's the accurate representation of your heart. And God hates it when we draw near to him with our lips and we sing his praises and we talk about his holiness and his goodness and his faithfulness and all of these things while our heart is a million miles away from him. We're thinking about the game. 
We're thinking about the picnic. We're thinking about the plans. If we even come to worship him before the game, let's get real about it. God knows nothing of that kind of worship. That's why one writer said the godly man speaks the truth to himself about God. He keeps himself from being deceived by carefully reading the scriptures and lining up his thinking with God's word. He has the courage to change his mind when he sees that his ideas do not line up with the Bible like he thought they did. The godly man speaks the truth to himself about others too. He does not allow a critical spirit to blind him. And he speaks the truth in his heart about himself. He doesn't flatter himself and become conceited. He doesn't run himself down and get depressed. He's balanced. He speaks the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. To his heart. And if you'll notice with me in verses 3 and 4, David illustrates what it means to speak the truth in our heart and for our words to be holy. Look at what he says at the beginning of verse 3. The worshiper of God does not slander with his tongue. What does the word slander mean? We use it a lot. Do we understand what it really means? It could literally be translated to go about or to foot it. Or to spy out. And this word slander describes the person who goes around looking for issues in someone else's life so they can use them against them. To foot it out. To spy it out. So they can use it against them. Slander is a form of gossip. It's a form of gossip that is often untrue and unverified. And every time it's used, it brings ruin upon the person's reputation. So holiness in our words means that we refuse to slander. We refuse to go about looking for things that we can use against other people and then employing them for our benefit and their harm. Look at the middle of verse 3. And he does no evil to his neighbor. David's describing a person with this phrase who does not bring harm to others by their words. They don't initiate gossip or rejoice in a gossip of any kind. Listen. It also means this. I was reading uh, some scholars and translators and commentators on this phrase to try to understand what David was really saying. And some of them said that there's a direct correlation to the word evil that David uses here. And in the New Testament, the Greek word that is used for pornography. Complete wickedness. Complete vileness. That they don't speak wickedness to others. They don't tell dirty jokes. They don't use crude language. Friends, have you ever thought about this? That when you use crude language, when you cuss, when you use derogatory language, you're actually dumbing down your intellect. You're dumbing yourself down. And it's a form of evil speech. You would speak like that to your family? You would speak like that to your friends? And then come into the house of God, into the presence of holiness, and sing praises to Him? Are you serious? Spurgeon said, Our Lord spoke evil of no man, but breathed a prayer for His foes. And we must be like Him, or we shall never be with Him. End quote. Look at the last part of verse 3. Nor takes up a reproach against his friend. This word reproach is an interesting word. It refers to sharp cutting and scornful speech about others, either behind their back or to their faces. It is literally describing a personal attack on someone else. And did you know that the root of this word is used six times in 1 Samuel 17 to describe the ridicule, the mockery, and the derision that Goliath heaped on Israel and Israel's God? That's the picture of the language that is used here. Mockery, ridicule, derision, sharp, cutting, personal attack. And look at the text. You talk like that With someone who's supposed to be your friend. The Puritan John Trapp said, The tail bearer carrieth the devil in his tongue, and the tail 
hearer carries the devil in his ear. It takes two parts. Well, how are we to think of this? Well, Chuck Swindoll was taught four gates of approval that our words should be filtered through before we speak. And the first gate, he says, is ask, is it confidential? And if it's confidential, never mention it. The second gate is, is it true? And this may take investigation. The third gate, which I find very helpful, is it necessary? So many words are useless. And we love to bloviate. We love to have an opinion about everything. And oftentimes, friends, our opinion simply doesn't matter or make a difference. It's actually freeing to say, I don't have an opinion about that. I don't need to have an opinion about that. Gate number four, is it kind? Does it serve a wholesome purpose? And notice the end of verse four gives one final illustration of our words. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. What's he saying? He's saying that you keep your word. That if you make a commitment with your word and it's time to fulfill that commitment and it's costly and it's inconvenient and you wish you hadn't made that commitment, you do it anyway. You keep your word. And David is stressing with these statements that the worshiper of God exercises self-control over their speech. And do you know it's the same thing that James taught the Christians of his day in James chapter 3. And you can read verses 2 through 10 in James chapter 3. And what James teaches us in these verses is that our tongue is so powerful that it has the power to direct our lives like a rudder on a ship. Our tongue is so powerful that it has the poison to destroy others. And our tongue is so powerful that it has the potential to delight God in our worship. And James concludes his teaching on the tongue by saying this in verses 9 and 10. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, and my brothers, these things ought not be so. So who can come into the presence of God? Who can experience his friendship? Who can worship him? Someone whose words are holy. Someone whose works are holy. Someone whose walk is holy. And if you're like me, after studying all of these statements, you come to this conclusion. If this is what re is required, who among us can live like this? And the answer is, friends, there's only one. There's only one who could live like this. There's only one who has ever lived like this. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that we're, we were created for communion with God. But because of our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinning, we were born with sinful natures. We were born with a bent that always desires sin. It's what our will is prone to. And just like Adam and Eve, our sin keeps us from God's presence. And therefore, on our own, we will never meet David's standard set forth in this psalm. There is only one person whom this psalm describes, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who has ever been completely holy in his walk, in his works, and in his words. He left the presence of his father to live the life of Psalm 15 that you and I could never live. And he died a criminal's death on the cross in our place so that our sins could be forgiven and we could be reconciled to God. And he didn't do it just to reconcile us to God. He also did it so that he could deposit into us the righteousness that Psalm 15 requires so that we could not only come into the presence of God, but we could actually worship him and have fellowship and communion with him through his righteousness. And friends, if you've never confessed your sin, 
and placed your trust in Jesus Christ, you will never be prepared to come into the presence of God like Psalm 15 describes. These verses demand as Christians that we examine ourselves spiritually before we enter the house of God in the presence of God. And so I ask you, dear brother or sister in Christ, did you examine yourself before you came to worship today? Did you ask God to prepare your heart? Did you ask God to cleanse you of your sins and refresh you and renew you in mind and soul and spirit so that you would come into this place not just honoring Him with your lips and your heart far from Him, but that you would be blameless and whole and complete and sound? Did you apologize to your spouse, to your children? Did you reconcile your relationship? Or did you just convince yourself and deceive yourself that it didn't matter? That because of grace, you could just come. You could just be. Oh, friends, if that's your attitude, what do you do with Psalm 15? Do you notice, Christian, that all of these characteristics emphasize relationships? There's a direct correlation between how we live with people horizontally and how we worship God vertically. Well, David not only asks a probing question and gives a practical answer, he shows us finally the promise given at the end of verse 5. And look at his summary. He who does these things shall never be moved. I love the word moved. It's a powerful word in this psalm. It could literally be translated shaken. It means to waver or slip or fall. It is used 14 different times in the Psalter to describe the stability that comes with God being the rock and the fortress and the salvation of our lives. And David is teaching us at the conclusion of this psalm that those who make God their trust will not be destroyed by the unstable, chaotic waters of the world. And notice it's a conditional statement. The one who does these things, what things? Those 12 statements in verses 2 through 5. The one who pursues a walk of holiness. The one who pursues works of holiness. The one who pursues words of holiness. They shall never be moved. The very first psalm describes the person of Psalm 15. And in Psalm 1 and verse 3, this is what the psalmist says. This person is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. This is the Psalm 15 man. This is the Psalm 15 woman. Pursuing holiness in their walk and in their works and in their words. And the person who does this will never be shaken. Their life will be stable. They'll be unmoved. They'll be planted firm by streams of water. They'll yield fruit in their life. They'll be prosperous in all that they do. That's the promise that is given. There's another illustration of it in Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And in verses 24 to 27, Jesus says this. That everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. You will not be moved. But the opposite. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. That's the picture. You'll be unmoved. I love how Warren Wiersbe described it. He said, this means that the godly described in Psalm 15 have security and stability in life, and they don't have to be afraid of earthquakes or eviction notices. They're stable, firm. Secure. Chuck Swindoll said, those who bring these areas under the control of the Holy Spirit will enjoy a sense of stability despite the shaky, chaotic world around them. 
They live stable, solid, dependable lives. They don't wonder if God is angry with them when bad things happen. They don't question the goodness of God or suspect his absence during sorrowful times. They aren't tossed about by the winds and the waves of circumstance. Their thinking remains solidly anchored in God's word, which they obey with consistency. They shall not be shaken. They shall not be moved. Firm, stable, secure. The godly, the man of Psalm 15, the woman of Psalm 15, has the promise of God that you are secure in him and you never need to be afraid. You'll never be moved from the dwelling place of God in this life or in the life to come. You will not be moved. Well, there are right ways and there are wrong ways to interpret and apply this psalm. The wrong ways are looking at this psalm and becoming a hypocrite by giving a shallow legalistic reading of it saying, I've got it all covered. I'm good. I do all of these things. Another wrong way is apathy. Not caring about the weight of the question that is asked in verse 1, who can come into the presence of Yahweh? And a third wrong way is being moralistic. A self-generated determination to live like this apart from the help of God. Instead, we should respond to and interpret this psalm this way. First, we should be filled with despair as we realize that we cannot approach the holy hill of God on our own. We need Jesus Christ. Secondly, we should be overwhelmed with immense gratitude that Jesus Christ, the righteous man of Psalm 1 and Psalm 15, is the king of Psalm 2 who has gone supremely in his ascension to the holy hill. And when David asks the question of verse 1, Jesus answers it in his life and in his death. And because Jesus answers the question of Psalm 1, you and I can answer the question of Psalm 1 and say, in Christ we can come. And number three, we respond and interpret it by finding welling up within us the spirit of Jesus longing for our hearts to practice what David is teaching us in this psalm horizontally and vertically. In these short verses, David provides a description of the one who can commune with God and enter into his presence. It is a warning for every worshiper for our walk, our works, and our words. And through Jesus Christ, we can fellowship with Yahweh. Let's pray.